St. James. Glad you guys are here. Welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream. Uh, take a second look at the notices, if you will. Everything is on schedule today. We're back to having youth catechism after this service, uh, done at 1245. Um, everything else is uh, for this week is on. Uh, Pam has asked me to remind you that this Saturday, October the 2nd, our church is scheduled to be at uh, Planned Parenthood in Fairview Heights, to pray at the front of the facility. There's times, it's, uh, there are half hour time slots that you can sign up for out here at the back. If you have any questions, uh, you can uh, call the church office as well. But please come out anytime for, between 7 a.m. and 1 p.m. Uh, October 2nd. All right, oh, oh, one more thing. Um, if, when you come up to communion, if you, feel, uh, if you feel safe kneeling at the railer, at the, at the kneeler, at the rail, you, you are more than welcome to do that. If you don't feel safe and you want to stand, that's totally fine too. But uh, the past couple of weeks, some people have been kneeling and some people haven't. And if you want to, you can. Uh, they, have been, they are cleaned. But um, if you aren't, that's fine as well. That's all I have for announcements. Uh, go ahead and stand with me and we will begin. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's ask God to forgive our sins. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
Psalm 135. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading is from Numbers chapter 11, and uh, the very end of this, this is going to connect with the gospel reading, you'll see why. Now the rabble that was among the children of Israel had a strong craving, Israel's in the wilderness. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said, so he feels like that because it's not appropriate for one person to be in charge of anything. Team leadership is the way God designed humans to work. And Moses is no different than any other human being. And so God fixes it. The Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. That's a good principle right there. Who are the elders? The elders are people that are eldering. You don't take somebody and make them an elder and say, okay, now go elder. You take people who are already being elders, and then you make them elders. That's the principle here. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they didn't continue doing it. And now here's the part that's going to connect with the gospel reading. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they hadn't gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. They weren't part of the 70 that God had taken the Spirit from Moses and put on them. They were just two random dudes that God put the Spirit on. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, my Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, today is our final day in the reading through uh, the epistle of James. We're to James chapter five. 
Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned. You've murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him, see, let him sing praise. Uh, these uh, next two verses, like uh, this is in the Bible, and so we do it. Uh, the elders have gone to people's homes here at church and have done this before. Have, have gone so like if this is something that you need, don't be like, oh, that's kind of weird. Uh, it must be from like two thousand years ago. It's actually in the Bible, so we do this. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Strong. 
Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 9. John said to Jesus, this is uh, not John the Baptist, this is uh, uh, John, brother of James. John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Jesus said, don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt's good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. And be at peace with one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Okay, you can be seated. So this is a, a weird little text. It starts off uh, Jesus having a conversation with the disciples. Uh, you know, they see this guy, and the guy's not with them, but he's doing stuff in Jesus' name. And they have a discussion with Jesus about that. And then it goes into this, uh, it goes into this bit about... Um, you know, your eye, cut it off if it offends you, and your foot and your hand, cut them off if they offend you. And then the weird sayings about salt and fire. 
And so uh, we'll try, try and put all those together today. I should just tell you, I mean, there's a lot here. And one of the things I debated last week, I thought maybe I'll preach about hell, which I definitely should sometime. And I thought this is, this is a good text to preach on that. But I'm not going to talk about that specifically today. I'm going to talk about something else. But um, there's a lot in here about that, and we can come back to that uh, some other time. But I do want to talk about like, what I think is the main issue that's going on here is this conversation with the disciples. Now, you'll remember the past three weeks, hopefully you'll remember, the disciples, you know, Jesus, Jesus has told them, I'm going to die and then rise from the dead. And then each time he predicts that, each time he says, I'm going to die and rise from the dead, his disciples start arguing with people. Uh, three weeks ago, remember he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, they come down and they find the disciples arguing with unbelievers, arguing with the scribes. And then last week, um, they're arguing with each other, right? Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And then James and John are fighting and saying, well, no, no, that, that, that's Mark 10. Mark 9 is, they're arguing on the way about which one of us is the greatest. So they argue with unbelievers. They argue with themselves. And today we find them arguing with a believer, but who's not part of their group. He's somebody who's doing works in the name of Jesus, but not part of their group. So if I can today, I just, I, this is a little bit, uh, this feels a little awkward to me. Uh, I guess I, I find myself saying that at the beginning of every sermon, and I just realized I'm just awkward. I'm an awkward person, I guess. If I can talk about denominations, because in, in, in my mind when I read that, this, this is what's going on. The disciples say, teacher, we saw, one, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. It seems to me like that's the main issue. Like somebody who's a Christian doing stuff in Jesus' name, but not a part of their group, and it troubles them, and then Jesus responds with the rest of the verses. So if we can, if we can talk about the problem of denominations or denominationalism, however you want to say that, and then talk about the solution, which here in um, uh, verses 40 and 41 is going to be finding our identity in the Messiah. And then if we can talk about, thirdly, uh, what we as Christians, how we should respond to this, which is repentance. That's what, the, that's what that next section about, you know, cutting your hand off and foot off and stuff like that. It's all about how we as Christians, in light of this, should respond by living lives daily of death or not death, death isn't the image here, but cutting off body parts that do bad stuff, but repentance. So let's talk about the, uh, uh, the issue of denominations uh, for a second here. And I'll just say right off the bat that um, uh, the fact that there are different Christian denominations, I'm talking about different denominations in the Christian church, is, a, it is actually a sinful. It's at least a part of living in the broken world. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, so here, please don't, I'm not saying Lutherans aren't sinful and the fact that everybody out there is not Lutheran is sinful. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the fact that there are different denominations is sinful. Lutherans are just as sinful as all the other denominations. The fact that there are, the fact that Christians are not united together and are divided up is a sign that we live in a broken, sinful world, even those of us who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. There are different reasons for this, of course. Uh, one is doctrinal. Uh, the, the, I'm, I'm going to give you three reasons. There's probably more, but let me give you three quick reasons why there are different denominations. One is doctrinal. It's very, very important to me as, a, as somebody who studied the Bible. I, I've come to believe that the gap between the physical and the spiritual world 
that I grew up with in the Baptist church, and I, I say this as somebody whose DNA is Baptist, there's a huge chunk of me that's Baptist, okay? So I'm not, again, I'm not ragging. But the gap between the physical and spiritual world that, we thought we, that, that I learned about in the Baptist church is actually non-existent in the Bible, the spiritual and the physical work together. That when God gives us himself in his word and in the sacraments, it's actually the power of God in physical form. That, I, that, that I've come to believe that. That's very, very important to me. If I'm talking to somebody who's a Christian who doesn't believe that, I end up saying, oh, I think that they're wrong. I, maybe I am, but I'm gonna, I study this and I think that they're wrong. I'm going to try to encourage them to see it this way. I mean, that's why there's a difference between Lutheran and other non-Lutheran churches because you guys know this, right? I mean, I don't, this math might be funky, but 98% of what we believe and what the Methodists across the street believe and what the Catholics believe, 98% of it is identical. The 2% of it is the stuff we think about a lot because it's important and because there's disagreements. We end up thinking about a lot. It doesn't, it doesn't negate the 98%, right? But that 2% is enough that some of us are worshiping in this room and some of them are worshiping in that room and in that room. I'm telling you that that's sinful. I think that we all should be worshiping in the same room. But honestly, they've studied the Bible and they're completely convinced that they're right. And I've studied the Bible and I'm completely convinced that I'm right. I think that I'm 100% right about what the Bible teaches. If I thought that there was something that I wasn't right about, I would change my mind about it. But since I think that I'm 100% right about everything in the Bible, I don't change my mind. Now, I know that I'm not 100% right because that's just the way human nature works. My problem, though, is I don't know which parts are wrong. You know, if I, could, like if I could figure out which parts are wrong, I would switch. But I promise you that the Lutheran church is not the perfect church. That's just, that, that's just living in a fallen world means, is that there's stuff about what we believe and what we do that needs to be changed. We don't know what that is. And so we keep on doing what we believe God wants us to do in light of Scripture. But they do too. And because there's these doctrinal disagreements about these 2% things, we're at this point divided up. There are other reasons too. There are demographic reasons. Uh, I don't know if you've, if you've traveled, but you've noticed if you've uh, traveled in the South that there are tons of Baptist churches in the South. Angel and I lived in the South for about three or four years. And there's literally Baptist churches on every block there's a Baptist church. If you've traveled in the upper Midwest, you've noticed that there's lots of Lutheran churches. Why is this? Well, there's demographic reasons. Lots of people from mainly Lutheran countries settled in the upper Midwest, and lots of people who were Baptists settled in the South. There's demographic reasons for these things. There's a personal makeup reasons for these things. Some denominations happen to be, and I've, I've said this a, a few times recently, some denominations happen to be a bit more cerebral, more intellectual. And some denominations are more focused on actually knowing and loving and experiencing the presence of God. And so different people who are like, and some, some denominations are focused on service. And, and, and people who like find themselves with a particular bent typically drift towards a church that matches up with that bent. I don't think that that's necessarily the healthiest thing, but that's the way that it is. And so different churches emphasize different aspects of Christian life and uh, you know, why it's unfortunate is because a church like the Lutheran church, which typically tends to be a tad more cerebral and more doctrinal oriented, probably needs doses of the other two. But the people in those other two groups don't tend to come to this church. They go to their own church. And those churches maybe, a bit, maybe need a, a bit more of the cerebral. But unfortunately, 
because of this, the way that we go to church typically based upon where we sort of fit in and what clicks with us, that, that's the result. As I said, there's, this is a broken thing. It's a broken thing. But the, the, what we need is for Jesus to return to fix it. Now, this is the situation that we live in. At this point, the question at hand is what should we do about it? How should we live in this way? Because the Methodists are not going to en masse come into this building. And at some point, we just have to say, God's in charge of that. How can we live this way? So let me just point out real quick here, there's three things that, you, there's three things that the disciples do that we don't want to do in relationships with other denominations. There's three things they do, okay? There's three ways they respond to this guy who's a Christian, but not in their group. The first way is this, not focusing on Jesus. By making them being not in our group the main thing, instead of making Jesus the main thing, it's going to create unnecessary tension, and it's going to take the focus off what's really real. If we decide to double down and to be like, the important thing about us is that we're Lutheran, we are going to end up missing the point, because the point is Jesus. Unless somehow we imagine that Jesus is Lord here, but over there in the Methodist church, that's like a room full of unbelievers that need to be missionized. Unless we believe that. I don't know of too many people that believe that. But unless that's the case, we have to say that the Methodists believe in Jesus too. And we believe in Jesus too. And unless we, I'm not, but, but, but this is not, I know some of you are hearing me be like, sort of like, uh, uh, you know, wishy-washy and like doctrine doesn't matter. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, what are you going to do with the Methodist? I mean, we could like set up a cannon and shoot over at them. But like, what should we biblically do? And the answer is, what, number one, we should not focus on they're not a part of us. That should not be the first move. The first move should be they're Christians too. This is what Jesus does in verse 39. Jesus says, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Unless the Methodists are speaking evil of Jesus, we just have to say they're Christians too. I'm not saying, I'm going to qualify the heck out of this sermon but before I'm done. I'm not saying that we should not have dialogue with them and say, hey, look, I think that the Bible teaches that God is the sovereign author of creation. Methodists are Wesleyan. Uh, they tend to be Arminian. They tend to believe that God makes salvation just sort of like an open invitation, and your choice to become a Christian is what actualizes that. We believe that, that it's, you should make a choice. That's great, but it's actually God himself who's choosing you and working in our hearts to save us. Okay, so we should have conversations about that, and we should be firm on what the Bible teaches about that. But at the same time, we should say, hey, it's, it's going to be hard for them who are doing works in Jesus' name to say bad things about Jesus. And so first move is acknowledging them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Second move that would be bad, jealousy. Verse 38, John, uh, um, John, brother of James, says, Teacher, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Does anybody... Does anybody remember anything from the past few weeks that makes that kind of ironic? Something that happened, if you, if you got your Bible open, look back 10 verses from this verse. It's the story where the disciples can't cast out demons. And they go to Jesus, and they're like, why can't we do this? And he's like, it's prayer, you just be prayer. 10 verses later, John says, hey, we saw somebody casting out demons, but he wasn't following us, so we told him to shut it down. What's going on there? Jealousy. This happens quite a bit. 
in Christian churches, all Christian churches. It happens a bit in the Lutheran church. We see a church in town that's growing, that has thriving ministries, that has like a vibrant education program. People are coming to Bible studies and community groups. Worship is packed out. They got lots of things going on, minister, doing lots of ministry and mercy ministries. And we'll be like, oh yeah, they're, you know, they've sold out. It's what, 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 the, what, what the Lutherans will say about them, you know. Oh, they're theologically kind of soft. I bet their sermons are like seeker friendly and stuff like that. Well, what, what's, what, what, one of the issues is, I'm not saying that that's, that's not a lot. One of the issues is jealousy. Look at them doing great things for Jesus. Uh, they must be like faking it somehow. This is not to be among Christian churches. Our church or any other, but I'm, I'm talking to us right now. I'm talking to me right now. Right? Jealousy is never the way that we should engage with other Christians who aren't members of our church. Third way. It's an interesting way that John says this in verse 38. We tried to stop him because he was not following you. No, he can't say that because the guy actually is following Jesus. We tried to stop him because he's not following us. We tried to stop him because he's not following us. That lust for power, that desire that we, 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 people should be like here. People should be here doing what we do and listening to me preach. That should, that should be what they're doing. You can't say that they're not following Jesus, but you can say they're not following us. And Jesus says, who cares about following you? Well, we'll see that in just a second. You don't need them to follow you. That's not the main thing. Do they follow me is the question. You don't need them to follow you, right? You should never engage with Christians on the basis of a lust for power, which we always do. We always do. We're jealous. We want, we, you know, we want to be the growing church. We want to be the thing. We want people to come and join with us. This should never be the way that we engage because Jesus is the main thing, which brings us to the solution, part number two, identity in the Messiah. Identity in the Messiah. There's two ways to get at this. And if you're going to understand how to relate to other Christian denominations, you've got to understand two aspects of what Jesus is teaching us. One is that there's a broadness to Christianity, and two is that there's a narrowness to Christianity. And unless we get both of these aspects we're going to misunderstand what Jesus is trying to, to get us to see here about how to relate to non-Lutheran Christians or even non-St. James Lutheran Christians. There's a broadness to Christianity and there's a narrowness to Christianity. So first, the broadness. Here's what he says. Verse 39, uh, don't stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. Is that the standard? How do you know who's really on the end? Who's really a true, genuine Christian? That's a very, very broad, whoever's not against you is for you. If you guys will remember back, I think this was, I think it was in Lent, that I, we were reading through 1 John together and I was preaching through 1 John and maybe it was Epiphany, I can't remember, whenever it was in the lectionary. And um, I, was, I told you about this uh, uh, study Bible by this uh, famous evangelical preacher and in his, uh, actually, no, it's actually in his commentaries on 1 John. He, no, no, sorry, take it back. It's in his study Bible. There's like a list of 15 to 20 uh, checkmark boxes that you can tell if you're a real Christian. And it's like all these things, like, do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you faithfully worship? Do you, uh, do you put Jesus before yourself? Like, do you desire to be holy? It's all these boxes. And as you read through these boxes and you try to check them off, None of them, by the way, are 100% checkable because we're all broken in every aspect. But as you read through this and you start to check them off, you can see like 
the, the boundaries of the Christian world narrowing and narrowing and narrowing until there's hardly anything left except a tiny little bit of us fundamentalist true believers. And that's not how Jesus deals with the question of who's in and out. For Jesus, it's broad. Whoever's not against us is for us. That, that's the same. But by the way, this is one of my favorite things about Lutheranism. This is one of my favorite things about the doctrine of infant baptism. You know, like we baptize our kids. And as Luther says in the large catechism, you baptize your children and you pray, like God, give this child, be true to the promise of this baptism. Give this child saving faith. But when, when we baptize our kids, we just assume they're, we treat them like Christians. We just assume that they're in. We teach them to love Jesus. We teach them to memorize scripture. And we, we just act like they're really Christians. And if they grow up and they say, I'm against it, then we know that they're against it. But if they don't, we treat them, as, even, as, even if they are drifting emotionally or in habits of worship attendance or in Bible study, even if they're drifting, we assume that God has put his seal on them and that they're in. I, I, are there mistakes made sometimes? Yes. Are there mistakes made when you try and narrow it down to just the people who can show proofs that they're Christians? Of course. But I like that, the, I like that our doctrine of infant baptism captures this. If anybody's not against us, they're for us. Treat your kids like they're Christians. Treat them like they're believers. Believe that, this, that, believe that the kingdom is much broader than you thought it was going to be. We must not restrict Christianity, true Christianity, to us. I have heard a Lutheran pastor, an LCMS pastor, say, talk about a Baptist church and say their doctrine of baptism is, and he used the words, false gospel. That's such an abhorrent, unbiblical thing to say. I'm not even saying unloving, not kind, whatever. I don't care about that. That's not the important thing. I think you should be loving and kind, but who cares about that? The important thing is it's not true. To say that unless you have the doctrine of an LCMS Lutheran church, you're teaching a false gospel is a wicked thing to say. It's an ungodly thing to say. I'm almost halfway tempted to say it's a demonic thing to say. It's the lust for power. It's jealousy. It's sick. It's spiritually sick. Don't let it ever be said of St. James Lutheran Church that we would say, only the true Christians. If you want to be in the true Christian club, you've got to be a member of this church or this synod. This is not the way Jesus treats people who are not in the group. Now, it's abroad. Is it narrow? Because some of you are saying like, oh man, this is so wishy-washy. The next thing you're going to say is like, it doesn't even matter what you believe you're in. I'm not saying that at all. There is a definitely a narrowness to this, but the narrowness is Christ-centered. Let me show you what I mean. I don't know if anybody, when I, when I read uh, Mark, Mark 9, verse 40, if it, when, where Jesus says, if anybody's not against us, they're for us. I don't know if any of you thought of Matthew 12, 30 in your mind, where Jesus says the phrase, whoever is not with me is against me. Did, anybody, did, that, did that come to mind? So how, how do these two things go? In Mark 9, Jesus says, I, this is kind of confusing, so just pay attention. I'll try and talk slow. In Mark 9, Jesus says, Whoever is not against us is for us. But in Matthew 12, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Which one is it? Is it whoever's not against us is for us? Or is it whoever's not with me is against me? Can they both be true? Well, you know that I'm going to say they're both true because I'm a Christian pastor and they're both out of the mouth of Jesus. But how do you put those two together? That's the question. Now, so I'm, let me say them again. I'm going to say them uh, one more time. I'm going to say them slowly. And think about in your mind, 
Think about what's the difference between the two of them. There's a key pronoun difference. I just gave it away. There's a key pronoun difference. Mark 9, the one who is not against us is for us. Matthew 12, whoever is not with me is against me. When it comes to the Christian church, when it comes to us, it's broad. Whoever's not against us is for us. When it comes to the person of Jesus himself, the me, whoever is not with me is against me. When it comes to Jesus, it's extremely narrow. Look, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Like you, that, that's, that's the time to be narrow. That's the time to be strict. That's the time to say, there's, look, there's no other options. There's no sort of like guesswork here. It's Jesus or nothing. The only portal that human beings have to, G, to, to, to God is God in flesh, Jesus. No man's ever seen God, but the only God who sits at the right hand of the Father has made him known, John chapter 1 says. However, when it comes to Jesus' people, it's time for broadness. The question is, do you believe in Jesus? Now, we can, we can disagree about, you know, the, the 2% of the doctrine that we disagree about. We need to be discussing that and being in loving conversation and working towards, look, if the, if the Methodist church decided to suddenly believe that God is the sovereign author of salvation who chooses us and makes regeneration in our heart, I would be thrilled and I would not say at all, okay, now come join our church. I would say, be a Methodist church that believes in the sovereignty of God. The point isn't us. We've got to be broad. The point is Jesus, right? So narrowness and broadness. And, and if we can get this, if we can get this, it will allow us to enjoy, but not find our identity in our Lutheran distinctives. Let me say that again. To enjoy and rejoice in and talk about with each other and believe in, but not find our identity in Lutheran distinctives. We are not Lutherans first. We are Christians. We are Jesus' people. And if you study the Bible and you determine that Jesus teaches that Lutheranism is wrong, you are obligated as a Jesus person to leave this church. And I think that every time you and I study our Bibles, we have to go in with that commitment. Jesus, if you show me that Lutheranism is wrong, I'm ready to leave. Now, I have not yet got to that point. When I study my Bible, I see Jesus as the sovereign author of salvation. I see Jesus as the one who continually gives himself, all of himself to us in word and in sacrament. Look, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. One of the things that means is that he is with us always, even to the end of the world, at the risk of being pedantic. Which means that when we receive him in his word and sacrament, it's not an idea of him. It's actually, I'm committed to that. But if I, but this comes first. I never put that first and make that as a filter for this. I always use this as the judge of my Lutheranism. And if we can get to that place, I think that we can love and celebrate and rejoice in who we are as Lutherans, but find our identity in the Messiah. Where does Jesus say that here? Check this out. Verse 41, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. But belongs to Christ there? That word Christ, that's just, the, that's just the Greek word for the Messiah. It just means the anointed one. You know what's interesting about this? Is that, we talked about this last week, right? Jesus likes to call himself son of man. It's one of his title favorite. He likes to call himself Jesus, uh, interestingly enough, or not interestingly enough. He calls himself I sometimes. This is the only time in the entire gospel of Mark where he calls himself the Messiah. Why does he do it here? Because he's making this point that the main thing is that I, he's saying, not me, Aaron, but the main thing is that I am the Messiah. What's the Messiah? 
The Messiah is the king of the universe. The one who's going to come and be the new David. Who's going to come and set up a reign of peace and righteousness and is going to kill the Goliaths. That's me. And if somebody else finds out that you're a Messiah person and does even the tiniest thing for you, walks up and gives you a drink of water, that's the standards. That person's in. That's, that's all it is. If, if somebody's like, oh, that's a Jesus person. That's all you need. Right? The rest of the stuff is super important. Like, I'm going to continue meeting here as long as I'm convinced that the Bible teaches what we believe. I'm going to continue meeting in this room at St. James Lutheran Church. But them's my people across there in the Methodist Church. Them's my people over there in the Catholic Church. Sometimes significant disagreements. But if they're willing to say, I'll give you a cup of water because you're a Jesus person, then Jesus says they're in. The solution, what's Jesus saying? The standard is me, Jesus says. Are you a me person? Are they a me person? Then we're all together. Now, what should we as Christians do with this? Let me try and hustle through this. The Christian response, what Jesus says here is basically repentance. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, I should say first that Jesus, Jesus uses the word little one to mean believers. Sometimes he means like just children of God. He doesn't just mean little kids running around. He means children of God, and he calls children of God. He does this in Matthew too. He calls children of God little ones. So he's not talking about little kids here. He's talking about little ones who believe. He's talking about believers. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown at sea. Okay, what does, he, what does he mean who caused one of these little ones to sin? In the text, who's causing who to sin? Yeah, the disciples are causing this fellow Christian who's not following them to stop doing the kingdom work. They're causing him to sin. And Jesus is saying, knock it off. It would be better for you to be drowned in the ocean than to stop that guy from casting out demons in my name. Do not cause him to sin. Instead, forget about them. Like, don't, don't, don't worry. Here's what your focus should be. If all this is true, what should our focus be? You, if your hand causes you to sin, verse 43, cut it off. I'm not going to read all this again. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. What's he saying? He's saying this to that church over there. They've got their own thing. and they've got their own. I'm not, We're not worried about them, right? right? Let, let them be. Just don't, don't, try to get them to, don't try to get them to sin. Let them be. You, Aaron Miller, St. James Lutheran Church, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, you repent. When your hand offends you, you cut it off. When your foot offends you, you cut it off. By say offend, I mean by, by, by sin, cause to sin. If your eye causes you to sin, you Aaron Miller, you St. James, you LCMS, cut it off. You see what he's saying? Look, far too much Lutheran ink is spilt justifying why Lutherans are right and everybody else is wrong. Far too many Lutheran sermons are preached, declaring to a group of Lutherans why we're right and everybody else is wrong. Far too many, too, far too many Lutheran radio shows and podcasts waste way too much airtime arguing about why Lutherans are right and everybody else is wrong. Cut it off. Repent. You, Aaron, you repent. That's what Jesus is saying. Forget about them. You, you don't have anything to do with the Methodists or the Catholics. You repent of your Lutheran sins. 
unless you imagine that we're 100% right and that Aaron Miller is 100% right and they're the ones who have it wrong. It doesn't do me any good to preach against Methodist in here because none of you are Methodist. And if I do, so this is one of the signs of the failure of any person or any group. This is one of the big problems with denominationalism. Again, I say this as somebody who grew up in independent fundamental baptism, Baptist church. When, all, when you decide that my main goal in life is to correct everybody else because I'm 100% right, I'm spiritually dead. There's no hope for me. I'm going to continue living in the things that I'm bad at. And unless we're perfect, unless Jesus has come back and we're not aware of it, the Lutheran church has stuff that needs to change. And I'm not here to say what those are. I'm just saying that we have feet that cause us to sin. We have eyes that cause us to sin. How do I know that? Well, because I'm a human being who sins. And the point is not why they're wrong and we're right. The point is that we're wrong because everybody's wrong. And as Luther says, we need to daily die in repentance. He says that in the small catechism. Again, I said this last week. What's the first of the 95 theses? When our Lord and master Jesus says repent, he means for all of life to be one of repentance. He doesn't say that means that they have to repent and come and be more like us. He says that Aaron Miller has to repent and become more like Jesus. And I can't control anybody else. This is our family. And here, we need to repent. And this is the best way to think about denominationalism is to think, it's not about them. It's about our need to repent and our job to serve and love them. It's broad when it comes to them. It's narrow when it comes to Jesus. And that means repentance for us, okay? Three things I want to point. I'm going to do this real quick here. Uh, The first one I already did, trying to fight against those who are in Jesus even though they are not a part of us, is a horrible sin. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. Verses 43 through 48, instead of focusing on those who are not a part of our group, let's focus on ourselves. Let's repent for ourselves and our own sins. And then finally, the third thing, and then we'll be done. This weird section about the salt and the fire, verses 49 and 50. So he's talking about the fire of hell, right? Oh, by the, by the who, who is Jesus threatening with the fires of hell? I don't, I don't have time to make any hay with this, but I'm just gonna leave this out there. Is Jesus saying the unbelievers are going to hell? Who's he threatening with the fire of hell? His own disciples. That's who he's threatening with the fire. It's not like you guys are cool, you guys are safe because you're the good ones. Now they're out there, they're in big trouble. He's saying, no, you're in big trouble. You repent. You disciples, my disciples repent. You St. James Lutheran Church, you Aaron Miller, you repent. He's talking about fire. And then he says this weird line in verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, what does that mean? That's kind of weird. It feels like he's mixing metaphors there a little bit. Actually, he's not mixing metaphors. Uh, Leviticus 2, 13 says that every offering in the Old Testament, every sacrifice in the Old Testament, meat offering and, and grain offering both, had to be salted. So every sacrifice had to be burnt and it had to be salted. And what he's doing, he's talking about hell. And then he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Basically what he's saying is this, everybody's gonna get burnt. Everybody's gonna get salted. And your two options are, burnt and salted in hell for for not repenting of your own sins or burnt and salted as a living sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to God by, how how do we, specifically in this text, how do we become that pleasing aroma, that sacrifice? How do we become the salted and burnt ones? Well, uh, verse 50, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The one another there is you guys, your group, and then that guy having peace amongst Jesus' people who might not go to the same church or be in the same group. It's a sacrifice. It's salt and fire. It's hard work, and it's not fun. 
And sometimes it's bitter. But when we do it, it's a pleasing aroma to God. And I, I know, I, I, I really do. I ask you to forgive me if what you're hearing is Aaron's arguing for sort of a postmodern, loosey-goosey, just it doesn't matter what you think. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that what Jesus teaches us here about loving people who aren't in our group is legit. And that's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say, let's be strict about what Jesus is teaching us here. Not wishy-washy about, about the doctrine of the faith, okay? But when we do that, it's a beautiful thing in God's nostrils. It's a beautiful aroma when we're at peace with each other. Why? So anytime you talk about sacrifice in the Bible, Old or New Testament, you're always talking about Jesus. Because what the Messiah is, the one that, the, the one that identifies us and the Methodist and the Catholics and the Baptist and the Nazarene church down the road and the non-denoms, what characterizes us is that we are Messiah people. And what makes us Messiah people is the salt and fire of the sacrifice of God himself on the cross. That's the main deal. That's the only thing that counts. Everything else is temporary. It's broken. The fact that we meet in this building and they meet in their buildings, it's temporary. It's broken. We should be praying that God would heal it. But the one thing that is guaranteed for sure is that the salt and fire of Jesus' death and resurrection is legit it is constantly wafting up to the nose of the Father and giving him deep, intense pleasure. And when you and I recognize that the most important thing in the world is the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that we share that with the Methodists and with the Catholics, and we join with them to the level that we can say, you are Jesus' people. Cup of cold water for you. Cup of cold water for us. When we join with them in that, we are identifying with the main thing. The only thing that actually gives God pleasure in the entire world, his own son, and those that are joined with him. And so let's, that, let's let that be the focus of our denominational differences. Not that there aren't differences and not that they don't matter, but that Jesus died for them and Jesus died for us. And when we love them and they love us, it is a pleasing sacrifice to God. Okay, let's stand and let's pray. Let's pray. Father, uh, be with us this morning. Help us to see, help us to, Read this teaching of your son and, and, and receive it. It's hard to receive it because it involves, like, God, let me confess. It's hard for me to receive this because it involves me admitting that I might be wrong. And it takes away my contentment that, I, that I'm right and drives me back to your word for more open-ended, deep study to find out what you really want from me. God, help us to keep on searching. Help us to keep on looking. Help us to keep on finding our nourishment in your word. Father, help us not to make little of our differences with our Christian brothers and sisters, but help us to rejoice in the oneness that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. And to make that the main thing. Help us to be Messiah people. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with all of our sister LCMS churches across the world, but especially here in uh, uh, the Riverbend area this morning in um, the Metro East. Help us to help uh, all of our churches, uh, our LCMS churches this morning as your word is preached and as your sacrament is received and celebrated and as hymns are sung to praise you and as uh, people explore who you are in relationship with each other in community. Help us all to come to know you better and to receive you in a more wholehearted and rejoicing way. I pray that you would be with all of the gospel preaching churches, all the gospel preaching churches in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon. May your name be lifted up. May your kingdom grow. 
May demons be cast out. May the sick be healed. May relationships be um, reunited. May uh, people who are worried and afraid and full of anxiety, may they come to experience peace because of the power of the blood of your son, Jesus. We need you to do this. This is not something that we're capable of. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will you apply the unity of the blood of your son, Jesus, to all of our churches. Lord, in your mercy. For all those who are struggling, Father, this morning, we pray, we especially pray for Simeon Pingle, um, uh, Joanne, uh, Joanne's great-grandson, um, uh, the son of uh, Michael and Sarah, who has been hospitalized the uh, who's been hospitalized this past week and is now doing better, but please continue to give him strength and energy in his body. And for all those who are struggling, for those especially this morning who are afraid of death, Father, uh, make yourself known to them, intimately and deeply and profoundly known to them as the sovereign Lord of life. Promise them, whisper in their ears, shout in their hearts, fill up their brains and their minds and their emotions with the truth of your son's resurrection. And may they see that that is the most powerful force in the universe and that we are guaranteed to live forever in your new creation because of what your son Jesus did. Lord, in your mercy. We can only pray these things because we are your children and by virtue of our connection with your son Jesus have been invited into your house and we now own the place. And so we can come and uh, leap onto your lap and tell you what we want and hear your voice and know that you hear our voice. And so we make these prayers in the name of our brother, Jesus. Amen. Please confess with me your Christian faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. 
This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around and find somebody that you have not spoken to or haven't spoken to a lot and build a relationship with them. Go in peace.